Good morning, Memphis. Happy Saturday. I hope you had a fabulous week. Here we are already in the first week of February, one of my absolute favorite months. Um, I'm Sanaa, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn about their motivations, their inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab a cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. So of course, I don't have to tell you that February is Black History Month, a nationwide celebration that calls on all Americans to reflect on the significant roles that African Americans have played in shaping US history. And you probably know that Black History Month is credited to Dr. Carter G. Woodson, a pioneer in the study of African-American history, who earned his master's degree in history from the University of Chicago, and then later a doctorate from Harvard. Um, he also established the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History and founded the group's widely respected publication, the Journal of Negro History. In 1926, Woodson developed Negro History Week, and he believed, quote, the achievements of the Negro properly set forth will crown him as a factor in early human progress and a maker of modern civilization. And he chose the second week in February because it held the birthdays of two men who he identified as influencing the Black American population. So Frederick Douglass and President Abraham Lincoln. And then in 1976, we saw Negro History Week expanded into Black History Month. So today, obviously, we are talking about Black history, but we're also talking about racial equity. And I have joining me Dr. Saida Grundy. Dr. Grundy is a feminist sociologist of race and ethnicity and an assistant professor of sociology and African-American studies at Boston University. She is the author of the forthcoming book, Manhood Within the Margins, Promise, Peril, and Paradox at the Historically Black College for Men. She was formerly a junior fellow of the Urban Ethnography Project at Yale, and her research has been supported by the Woodrow Wilson Foundation, the Social Science Research Council, and the Andrew Mellon Foundation. Good morning, Dr. Grundy. How are you? I am really well. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I am my favorite catfish city in the world. Yes, I love that you said that. (laughs) I I love me some Memphis. I love me some Memphis. I really do. Like it is, I just, I just pretty much eat my way around Memphis. I feel like Memphis is like, it's like, it's, it's like micro New Orleans, but it also has its own flavor. It's like smokier. It's like, I I love it for that. Yes, I, I love that you said um, eating your way through Memphis because listeners know I love food. We actually did a whole episode about barbecue, and I'm even happier that you didn't say barbecue, but you said catfish because catfish I- in Memphis slaps. Yes, it yes. is one of the it is the most consistent slap in the city of Memphis. It's everybody's catfish is on point. And I'm like a catfish fanatic. Like I'm like a sommelier of catfish. (laughs) Like it is catfish in Memphis is bar none. Like I feel like there's some cities where it's like that catfish ain't really crispy. Like, you know, like it's a little, no, Memphis is a consistent catfish city. Yes. That's how you judge soul food. Oh my goodness. I, that just warms my heart to hear you say that. And now I know a talent of yours, a sommelier of catfish. I feel like that should go <laughs> on your bio, on your business card. <laughs> I can tell you the year of the catfish. <laughs> I can tell you which river it came from. Yes. <laughs> oh my goodness. I love it. I'm, I'm really, it warmed my heart. Now I know what I'm going to eat for lunch because I absolutely, absolutely love some fried catfish. I'm very picky about the catfish, high standards for the catfish. I'm all about it. I'm all about it. Yes. Oh my goodness. I love that. All right. So I have you here today. We're talking kind of broadly about Black history, but also equity, because I think that's such an important piece of thinking about um, Black History Month, but also like 
Black futures, right? And not just constrained within um, learning about history, which I do think is very, very important, but also thinking about contemporarily what's happening and then thinking about like a vision for the future as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, where do we start? <laughs> well, you know, this is what I was thinking um, because there's so like there's so many places where we could start. But what I was really thinking about was, you know, when Carter G. Woodson first created Black History mm -hmm. Month or the week, you know, thinking about this corrective to how history books had ignored Black Americans and his desire to really write Black people into their proper place in our nation's history. And what disturbs me is, you know, how little progress we've made in doing mm -hmm. that. Um, uh -huh. And I mean, I grew up here in Memphis, a city who owes its very existence to a black man. And I mean, we could go deeper into- And it's named after Egypt. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, there's so many other, you know, historical things, right. black women and men, um, yet right. the black history we learned even in Memphis city schools at that time um, was mm -hmm. so, so limited. Yes, yes. So, you know, Carter G. Woodson is like a Titanic figure and he's very close to home for me because he goes to Berea College um, where my mother went in Kentucky, right? So Berea is this um, very pioneering um, uh, mixed race school, which in fact, laws in Kentucky were passed specifically to segregate Berea College. So the day law, which is called that, you know, you can't have black men and white women going to the same school together uh, or, or at least being in the same place during the daytime together at all. Um, these were called the day laws. Um, and so this is, you know, he's, he's very close to my heart. And at Berea, he really creates this sort of intellectual enclave for black thinkers, including Du Bois who comes through Berea. Like there's this photo that is taken, like this group photo of a whole bunch of black people at Berea College and Du Bois takes the photo. <laughs> so it's like really, you know, Carter G. Woodson was a mammoth of a thinker. And I think that, you know, one of the things that to put it in context, the importance, you know, I think now it's hard to understand how claiming that the Negro had a history was a radical declaration in its time. They were dealing with the time where one, it was taken as fact throughout intellectualism, you know, throughout intelligentsia, it was taken as fact as, fact as one, Africa had no history. This was considered like, like just as, as much of a law as gravity, Africa has no history. Mm -hmm. um, and that the Negro had no history. And that is extremely, uh, it's a political declaration because it, it's, it's a denial that these people even come from any sort of humanity. So how could they ever you know, claim humanity? And certainly how could they ever claim a right to knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. And so Carter G. Woodson's you know, whole thing is like, no, the black, you know, black people have a claim to knowledge because they come from a history. And so that's a very radical act in itself. You know, I think about um, even specifically the the act of, you know, Douglas even talks about like, um, you know, Africa's history. Like at the time of Frederick Douglass, one of the things that the, you know, that sort of late era abolitionists are clinging to is the idea of like Egypt mm -hmm. and that Egypt is Africa and Africa therefore has a history because white, people are, are one, arriving at the idea of Egypt, but then they are separating Egypt from Africa when they do that. Yeah. And it's really, um, in fact, there's some names I'm, I'm forgetting right now, but there, there are a handful of black scholars, including a black woman um, at the time who were very adamant about reclaiming Egypt. And that's the reason we have Egyptology. It's the reason we have Egypt, you know, as a field of study is that black scholars at the time, black intellectuals at the time, reclaim that. So, um, you know, with Carter G. Woodson Act, it's, uh, you know, like I said, it's, it's, uh, it's a political act because he's saying that we have a, uh, a, a right to, to uh, this stakes, right? And that without that, we don't have, you know, Black studies. We don't have um, any of these other fields and endeavors. And that he's coming up at a time when, you know, like he said, he goes to, you know, Harvard for his doctorate. And you have this cohort that emerges out of Reconstruction of Black people who are integrating the most elite programs in the country at that time. Now, remember, the country, the United States is burgeoning in its own intellectual tradition because still throughout the 1800s and the, you know, the 
20th, early 20th century, Europe is still the place intellectually. It's like Germany, right? It's the Sorbonne and it's Germany, it's Berlin. Like these are still the metropoles. And any, if you go to school in the US, it's considered like B-rate, right? <laughs> right. And you know, it's like, like okay, like, you know, these, these sort of like pioneer, you know, yokel schools called Harvard and Yale, right? <laughs> um, you know, it, it, that's like ironic to think about now, but it really was mm-hmm. like, if you were a serious scholar at the time you were in Berlin, yeah. Um, so, uh, um, and so, you know, they, they are not only, you know, integrating and really, you know, bur- bursting their way through these elite programs in the States, but they're also having these conversations with European scholars. You know, we know about, you know, Du Bois and Weber having, you know, Du Bois studies, you know, with Weber. Weber says, you know, I learned from him. He learned from me. He was not my student. He was my peer. Mm-hmm. And Carter G. Wilson is doing, you know, very much the same thing. Um, I actually want to know more about his time at Chicago um, in terms of, in terms of, you know, the real story about who he had to fight. But, like, <laughs> but, but yeah, you know, the, the expansion of Negro History Week to Black History Month really comes with a lot of political, um, real, it's a resistance movement. It's a resistance movement to do that um, because, you know, again, it is the, it's the idea that it's it's very it's it's very disruptive to claim that there's something missing from white history mm. to say that it, that what that we need black history right that that's actually very um, very subversive in itself. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I'm so glad that you reminded of us us of that fact because now in our 2021-ness right we're just kind of like oh it's just Black History Month right like this is just kind of what it is what we do but to really contextualize what it meant to make that statement and to push for the recognition of African-American achievements African-American thinkers um, and what that meant both at that time and then even thinking about the recognition into Black History Month in the 70s, yes. right? And what was happening in the 70s. Yes. Um, and remember, Carter G. Woodson, um, okay, so talk about the 70s. So we're talking about, so there is this, this, I love like this period of like 1968 through like 1972. I don't know why it's like, it's like my thing. Because <laughs> so much happens. Yes. Because- in the wake of, remember, Malcolm is, is, is murdered in 65, King's murdered in 68. And in their vacuum, this is kind of, let me back up. There are two really important periods after two really important people die in which there's a real decision made about who will fill their shoes. How do we like, so the first one is Frederick Douglass. When he dies, that's when we get Du Bois and Booker T rushing to fill his shoes. And there's this idea of like, who will be the race man, right? And they have competing ideologies, not initially. Initially, Du Bois agrees with him. Then Du Bois is like, this dude's bullshit. So they, they have competing ideologies. But then there's a second vacuum that's left after the assassination of Malcolm mm-hmm. and King. So the Black cultural movement that emerges from 68, and it's the reason we have Black Studies Department, it's the reason we have, you know, we can go into Kwanzaa because I have a lot of tr- problems with Maulana Karinga, but we'll go into that in that. But all that to say, Malcolm is really the pivot, right, between that era of the 60s Black power and what we come to know as Black cultural nationalism, which is really the generation, you know, I was even born into, like this this reclaiming of Africanity that comes in with the 70s. But the other important things that happened in the 70s is we see an institutional shift. So for example, our good colleague, um, Joyce Bell, writes this whole book about the history of Black social work. And it's a great Mm -hmm. case study and how so many of these organizations changed in the 70s because of this fact. Black power shifted ideology, politically, culturally, the aims of Black liberation movements. Um, And what happens, oddly enough, is, you know, like, so with the civil rights movement, you can say, okay, the end game is legislation. Mm -hmm. And you sort of measure its effectiveness by like, okay, what did they pass in terms of legislation? But for Black power, it's like, well, what was the end game? How do you sort of measure its success? 
And what Joyce argues is actually what happened with Black power is it got absorbed into these institutions. So Black social work is one of the organizations that takes Black power and it puts it into how the state is operating with Black families. You know, uh, we take Black power and we put it into how universities operate. So we see this whole crop of like not just hiring Black scholars, but changing the curriculum. You know, this whole, you know, our the things that we still thrive in now in terms of like, oh, we have area studies that comes out of the 70s, right? So, you know, I think that there's no coincidence at all. I mean, it's very intentional that that, you know, Black History Month, first of all, calling it Black, right? Yeah. This is all part of the Black power tradition. So in the 70s, it's like this you know, and I, I, I wonder the role again of institutions in that in terms of higher ed, in terms of black power organizations, in terms of black cultural organizations, black, you know, cultural centers, etc. in doing this expansion of Negro History Week to the month, right? Because the 70s is the exactly the point in time where black people are building infrastructure through institutions, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, my, my father says this all the time. He's like, you know, it's so interesting or maybe even disappointing that we're at a point now where it's like, you know, you know, can our lives matter? He's like, when I was, you know, when he was, you know, a teenager, you know, when he was in his twenties in the sixties, it was like, can we build a nation? You know, <laughs> it's like, it was like, it wasn't, can our lives matter? It's like, can we build a nation? Like, you know, African independence was catching like wildfire. So it was actually not far-fetched to think about independence for black people in this country. Um, that was not politically that far-fetched. It was happening throughout South America. It was happening throughout the global South. And so, you know, the idea of like, no, black people need their own, you know, communities. They need their own centers. They need their own, you know, credit, you know, uh, banks. They need they, like all these things that they were building throughout the seventies, I think is really a testament to how that sort of long game of Carter G. Woodson's, you know, again, him writing, you know, like, like, you know, the definitive like history of the Negro, right? Mm -hmm. um, that really actually, you see those seeds take fruit in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Yes, I love that phrasing of like the seeds that he planted from, you know, this really big vision of his, right, that he had yeah. and the ability to kind of put that, you know, into motion um, and, yeah. and everything that came forth from that, um, especially as you were talking, thinking about institutions, right? And so, so much is happening, of course, in the 70s. As you mentioned, we see really this establishment of Black studies as well as other ethnic studies programs. And you see, right, the creation of this whole Black History Month. So this expansion yeah. of this idea, you know, just an idea that Carter G. Woodson had. Yes. So, you know, it is, uh, you know, and of course he would, you know, be probably the first to say that he wasn't alone in this. And I think that one of the responsibilities we have is to like understand him as a member of a cohort, you know, a member of, you know, who were his peers, who were the people who worked on him. Um, Cause you know, we've done this to Du Bois to an extent. It's like, oh, Du Bois actually had black women intellectuals like yes. working on him. And that's the reason that, you know, his, his books like have whole chapters about black women, et cetera, right? And I think we should do the same for Woodson, um, you know, understanding that whole like crop of like, I mean, I, I think of, you know, I, I think of Woodson's era. He's born 1875. And I'm like, you're born in reconstruction. Like, you know, like you were born in reconstruction. And so he and the boys are exactly peers. And that whole, if, if to, to put this in like a context, there are two generations that are at war. One, the sons and daughters of the Confederacy are also born in Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And they give birth to Woodrow Wilson and Thomas Dixon and the daughters of the Confederacy. And they are on a very, very stalwart, you know, march to the sea, Sherman's <laughs> march to the sea to to basically repeal reconstruction and return black people to neo-slavery. Mm -hmm. They, what they are doing is they are revising the history 
of the Civil War. They are revising the history of slavery. They are saying that slavery was benevolent to Black people, that it was, you know, it was one of the better things that ever happened to them. It gave them Christianity. It got them out of god-awful Africa. They are putting up Confederate statues in all of our public places, and they are very actively revising textbooks throughout schools so that slavery is taught to actually erase Black people's history. So if you think about that parallel to what Woodson is doing, then you're like, oh, this dude wasn't sort of passively thinking like, well, Black people just need a history. He's actually <laughs> at war against an entire generation of neo-Confederates who are erasing and revising the history of slavery. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, you know, even as we see kind of like the seeds of Woodson and everything that he was doing, we also see those seeds of what the Daughters of the Confederacy, yes. what these other groups were doing in that same time period as well. Absolutely. I mean, it is, you know, we can't, we, you know, when, when, when I teach my students about Trump, like I really, you know, one of the books that I love giving them is Carol Anderson's White Rage because it gives them a theory to grasp onto for the backlash that happens to these perceived moments of like, of like black advancement, right? So even though Obama's one person, you know, he's one person too much, you know, he's, he's a Negro on a horse to use a Django term, right? And, you know, like the backlash to a lone black person who was not particularly leftist, in the Oval Office, you see this huge, you know, wave in terms of like, oh, well, we got to like, well, we're willing to take the country. They are literally willing to destroy the country to basically get back at the country for electing Obama. But that's really, if you took like a, a snapshot and really played the whole film of that, right? If you put that little clip and you're like, oh, this is a whole reel of these, then you would realize like this actually happens over and over again. You know, they say, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it sure does rhyme. <laughs> and so that era of like the second, you know, the second rise of the of the Klan and the Woodrow Wilson era, that that red terror era around 1919, you know, the one that we have, you know, wonderful work about from, you know, our, our, our mother, Ida B. Wells, et cetera. That really is sort of the most similar historical period we've been in, in terms of, and that would be the time in which Carter G. Woodson is really like, he's, Oh, here's another thing about Carter G. Woodson. He goes to college in his 40s. Mm. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I mean, he goes to Berea when he's like at least in his late 30s, if not 40s. So he's a grown man in college. <laughs> and, you know, just, it, it, it just reminds me of like, first of all, it's like how much Black genius was denied by Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. And so you have these Black people who come to these things much later in life because they've been like sharecropping and et cetera. So yeah, he's a very non-traditionally aged student. But all that to say, uh, my point with that is that, yes, he is coming of age in this point of severe white backlash to the perceived advances of Reconstruction, that Black people have put themselves in Congress, you know, they're all over the state legislature, you know, they can vote. Um, and there is this panic that, you know, that that for neo-Confederates, that will mean the end of, you know, of, of the Republic. Ironically, the Republic, they tried to destroy. <laughs> they, they went to war to destroy that Republic. What did you try to protect now? But all that to say, um, yeah, you know, I, 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 you know, looking at him like as a man of his time, I just appreciate him so much more for understanding that one of the most powerful weapons you can use politically, because this is what his enemies understood, was how you write history. There, you know, there is, there is what happens in, you know, but happens before right now, that's called the past. And then what we say about it is history. And there are some people who believe those should be the same things. But for the enemies of Black liberation, their act and their tool was to revise that history, mm -hmm. right? And I just appreciate them so much more for saying this is a weapon as much as any legislation, you know, mm -hmm. as much as any bullet. The way we write our history will, you know, like someone has to get this right now. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to jump more into this conversation. Um, you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. So this is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Saida Grundy and we're talking about Black History Month, Black history and Black intellectualism, really, if I had to kind of put a, you know, a headline <laughs> over it. And you know, before the break, you were talking about uh, Carter G. Woodson and really um, his ability to mark that moment by writing the history that had not been written written at that time um, or had been written in very perverse ways, right? Um, but writing African-Americans into our national history, into our textbooks. And when we think about, um, you know, other folks similar to him, I want to talk about Du Bois because I know you do work in the Du Boisian tradition. And I know Du Bois also um, a very prolific scholar who is doing a particular type of intellectual work and political work um, with his studies. Absolutely. So, um, you know, the reason that, you know, we as sociologists, um, you know, consider Du Bois our, you know, intellectual parent, right? <laughs> is that one, you know, and this, I, 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 I love coming into sociology this way. Like I'm kind of obsessed with origin stories mm-hmm. and I really like the origin story of sociology for this reason. There are many social sciences that study race and that study race well, but sociology was actually crafted on sort of two playing fields. One was that after, after emancipation, after the Civil War, there was a sort of economic panic in the South amongst planters who now wanted basically help um, from the dominant you know, thinkers in Europe of the day to sort of, how can we create a system that perfects the exploitation we formerly had, but this time won't lead to revolution. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like this time it won't resort in emancipation. And there was a sort of like, no, how can we get slavery better this time? You know, like what is a neo-slavery? And that was actually a conversation they were having with social scientists in Europe, which is fascinating to me. But what Du Bois does is I think is, which is so important is that you know, it was widely accepted through, you know, the eugenics movement, through just common white supremacy, through slave clothes, through black clothes. Black inferiority was widely accepted. Now, mind you, 1880s, 1890s, through the first quarter of the 20th century, huge, huge influx of European immigrants, Southern and and Eastern mostly, right? Mm -hmm. Huge influx. And we see with them, and you know, this is what Khalil Gibran Muhammad talks about um, in, in his book about like the history of like crime statistics. Kind of mm-hmm. interesting to think about how racialized that history is. And he says, you know, when this you know population comes into uh, the population, redundancy, that uh, that you know the way that newspapers talk about them, the way that social scientists talk about them is kind of the same kind of terms we hear being talked about black people. They're dirty, they're swarthy, they have too many children, they're morally, you know, inept, they're intellectually inept, etc. But here's the difference. It is decided by the progressive era that they can be whitened if we just change them culturally. Mm-hmm. That they're that underneath all the swarthiness, underneath their language and underneath their Italianness and their Latvianness and their Croatianness, they're really white, right? And you can just strip that away. I mean, Henry Ford does this, you know, literally with his workers. He like literally is like, I have, an, you know, he called them English schools um, where they were taught to be, you know, white Americans. And so there was an argument made that they might be culturally different, but they're not defective biologically, et cetera. But when it was for black people, the argument was no, they're actually biologically defective and there's something innate about their inferiority. It's not conditional. There's no amount of changing their neighborhoods or changing or assimilating them that will work. This is an innate quality of their inferiority. They are criminals because they are criminals. You know, they are poor because they are poor. And Du Bois is the one who comes through and says, not only are you all stupid, but I actually 
will be able to prove why empirically. And that's really why we have empirical social science. It's the Atlanta school, right? It's Du Bois saying, I'm going to prove with scientific method that there is nothing defective innately about black people. What we're talking about is poverty. We're talking about poverty here. There's nothing about black people that's defective. And I love, I really, I love that that's the origin story of sociology if you, if you understand sociology and if you understand chronologically that occurred before the Chicago school. Mm -hmm. Yes, I love Du Bois and the Atlanta school. I mean, thinking about what you said <laughs> previously about Woodson and everyone, you know, that was around him, right? His team of people, <laughs> if we were talking about 2021, <laughs> you know, Du Bois too, having this whole team, his whole squad of people. <laughs> <laughs> um, with the Atlanta school, but also to make the connection to something you said previously, which is that Du Bois often gets very minimized for his uh -huh. role in creating, right, the Atlanta school and everything that came out of it and how even within sociology and other disciplines as well, we see this rewriting of our own disciplines origin stories as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, so, and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm again, appreciating so i have a, a colleague um named jarvis uh uh this is leslie jarvis houston anyway our jarvis is at is it harvard now where is jarvis i gotta check in on him anyway he's like the carter g woodson historian and so so much of what i appreciate about woodson comes from him and sort of like you know if i were a historian which is like i'm like a closet historian but it's like i don't actually know how to do archival research so if i were a historian I think one of the most valuable things they do is they take these lives, they take these figures and they thread them so that they are threaded through other people's lives so that no one exists in these vacuums. And you understand like, you know, even like just the, sometimes it's serendipity how movements arise. Like I just am learning this year that King was sort of an accidental leader that literally the reason that King becomes the figurehead of the Montgomery boys, bus boycott is because Dexter, his church is the closest to downtown. <laughs> and he's, you know, it's like, it literally is like, they need to meet, the black people in Montgomery need to meet somewhere. His church is closest to downtown. He says at the first meeting of the boycott, he says, look, I, I wouldn't be here either, but it's my church. <laughs> and, he, and he becomes this 25-year-old leader of a movement, which is like, how accidental is that? You know, some would call it like divine providence. Like, no, he, you know, he was meant to be there. Sociologists would be like, that's a direct network effect, right? That is like, literally, it's a geographic network effect that he happened to have a church that was like closest to the center of the action. Yes. Right? So I, you know, I love thinking about, you know, uh, Woodson, you know, in the same type of way in terms of like, so the NAACP history, you know, the history of the NAACP of which Woodson was, you know, a very, very active member figure, you know, sort of a titan of NAACP. And there was a time in which you could not be taken seriously as a black person if you were not in the NAACP. And the NAACP was really, really like, I won't call them well, no, I, some of what they did was radical, but they were definitely very progressive. Mm -hmm. They were definitely very, very progressive. And, you know, NAACP's connection to the Niagara movement, sort of how it comes out of that. This is like a black intellectual movement first and foremost, before it's even a civil rights movement. Well, the way they saw it, you couldn't disconnect the two. Mm -hmm. To be a black scholar was to be a civil rights activist, right? you know, Charles Hamilton Houston is like, well, to be a black attorney is to be a civil rights activist. Like those were not separate for them in the way that I think that white scholars think about it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think about, you know, threading Woodson through his time and you're like, oh my goodness, like, you know, he's influenced by Garvey. He's, you know, he's right in the center of the action when it comes to that, those early, you know, um, early movements of the NAACP. Remember, the civil rights movement really starts, and I believe it's in Tennessee, it really starts with the teachers unions, with mm -hmm. Charles Hamilton Houston, who is the mentor of Thurgood, uh, Thurgood, uh, um, uh, why am I Thurgood? Marshall. <laughs> I'm like, why am I saying Washington? Thurgood Marshall's mentor, but he's bigger than that. Charles Hamilton Houston is basically the founder of Howard Law School 
And he creates this legal machine in which he is just putting out black civil rights attorneys. Like he's like, this is, we are gonna use. And he was so, so genius with it. Cause he's like, we're gonna use sociology, political science, economics. Like we're gonna use all of these disciplines to argue not just the law cause to argue the law is not sufficient. You actually have to argue these other social sciences in order to persuade the courts. Mm-hmm. And they were like, I mean, they were really genius with theirs. And they really understood that, like, you know, when, when it came to the civil rights movement, they chose teachers because teachers' pay stubs were the empirical evidence of inequality and that Plessy v. Ferguson was not being upheld because mm-hmm. you had this, this stamp thing that said Black teachers are getting paid less than white teachers. That's inarguable, right? And so that's why the civil rights movement really starts there. Um, And with Woodson, Woodson understands that like, oh, we're going to actually have to, one, as we we are creating, you know, these black movements, we also have to use black history to, to really disavow the legacy of black inferiority. And I really, you know, appreciate Woodson for like, and you know, I think about this even like for my own life, it's like, if the measure of someone, of a, of a scholar, the measure of an intellectual should be how much they left in writing, you know? Um, and for Woodson, it wasn't just what he left in writing. Like the man left us journals. Like he, be, he started journals that we still have. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think about, you know, the importance of creating Negro history as like a field um so yeah that's my my ramble on that (laughs) yes yes well you brought up that great kind of like tidbit about MLK um Mm -hmm. which I did not know right so again thinking about just this kind of accidental leader um and I would love to talk a little bit more about MLK since of course Memphis Um, yes (laughs) and also because not only because black history month but because mlk observance and how we see everyone roll out these great mlk quotes and you know the memes (laughs) (laughs) and the you know the great images and i think you know so much about mlk has been lost and purposely you know forgotten um from his legacy yeah, ab- absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I, for, I think, you know, the first thing, you know, we understand this and I think there's an increasing understanding of this, which I'm appreciative of, but I still want the public to understand that like MLK was a radical. By the time he is um, approaching his death, which he doesn't know he's approaching his death, he is calling himself a democratic socialist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when he is on the balcony at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, the speech in his pocket is entitled America may go to hell. That is the last speech that he never delivers, right? You know, like, you know, we sort of end King's life at the March on Washington, like he didn't live <laughs> several years past that. Uh, he lives till 68, that March is in 63, right? <laughs> he has a nice chunk of life after that. And he, you know, it, MLK, you know, today in, in his day, right? You know, you know, Hoover called him, you know, um, not only an enemy of the state, but Hoover was obsessed with King as Hoover was obsessed with this idea of a black messiah rising, uniting black people. And that to Hoover, this was the most immediate threat to the state. The most immediate, not, 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 you know, missiles, not, you know, communism. Well, what, I mean, he tied it to communism. But black power to him was the insurgency that was going to crumble white power and thus crumble the state. Um, And so he was obsessed with anyone he felt was this charismatic leader who could do that. So he, you know, he's trailing Malcolm, he's trailing King and he's trailing Fred Hampton. He's like, he's really keeping his eye to the fold. And with King, it's like, I mean, it goes beyond obsession. Um, I mean, Hoover is, he's bugging his hotel rooms. He's bugging his house. Um, you know, a lot of people don't know, Coretta Scott King sues the United States government for its, its role in her husband's assassination mm-hmm. and she wins. Yeah. And, the, and the evidence is overwhelming 
that they say, look, you know, James O'Reilly is a patsy. It is very clear from the evidence that the FBI, CIA, and the mafia conspired to take King out, which is ironic because it's the same thing that happened in the Kennedy assassination. Mm -hmm. So, so it's like, you know, like, I'm, again, not very long, far apart. It's like they had done it once before to do it again. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so she wins that and it's, and, you know, and, and I, you know, there's, there's good books on that trial, but I need to like, I need to go get those books because it really lays out that no, the FBI had a direct hand in King's assassination, um, you know, because of his radicalism. Um, you know, King gets, you know, weaponized against Black liberation now. And, you know, I think it stings us all. It is really, you know, King is a, he's a, he's a collective ancestor. He's one of those special categories of, of shared ancestor. And so to see people, the very people who murdered him, turn around and use him against us, Mm -hmm. You know, like imagine like someone who, you know, murdered your grandfather <laughs> using your grandfather's legacy against you. That's how it feels. And particularly because understanding that where King was going, and again, this is no mystery. He wrote it down. He left us many, many, many radical speeches. And, you know, we love to play this game with King. Like he was so opposed to black radicalism. Like I really, this is the reason I hate Lee Daniels because he makes it seem like, you no, know, like really like he's a revisionist, you know, history, you know, historian, right? Mm -hmm. His films actually do a great sense of violence that someone like Woodson would be turning over in his grave about. That it makes it seem like there were these two paths to black, you know, only two, two paths to black, you know, progress. And that one, the passive one worked better. And that's just not true. King is not at odds with black liberation. In fact, King is a mentor of Stokely Carmichael, like a direct mentor. Like he rocks hard with Stokely Carmichael. Like I was reading King's speeches the other day and he's like, so when uh, it was um, James, um, James Farmer, I think James Farmer, he shot. He shot in, I think in Alabama and they go to his uh, hospital room. And King is talking about, yes, yeah, Stokely and Cleveland Sellers are stopping by. Like, does, and I'm like, oh, they were all like, they consider themselves like Stokely and all the like SNCC people and all those people who really directly influenced the Black, Black Panthers. Mm -hmm. They actually see themselves as like King's little brothers. Yeah. And, and I think it's, we do such a violence to King to make it seem like he would be so against this looting. King told us he's like, looting ain't nothing but the voice, you know, it's, it's the voice of the other press. Like it's, it, it, it's the only thing you leave people with when you strip them of everything. Um, you know, King also was very, very radically opposed to capitalism. Yes. He saw capitalism as the root of this very long engineered system of white supremacy in which even the poorest white people, you know, back to Du Bois, Du Bois called it the, the wages of whiteness, like that psychological currency of whiteness. Even when white people don't have something materially, they attach onto the value of whiteness. Yeah. And they say, you know, even though I have so much in common with you from a class standpoint, black person, I have to at least participate in your oppression because that's how I get my wages of whiteness. King understood that. And, you know, his, you know, his, his, his labor movement um, as he, you know, that he's organizing upon his assassination, right? The poor people's movement is exactly about that. That's the real threat. King said himself, he said, the vote did not cost them anything. Mm -hmm. What will really cost them something is what we're doing now with this, you know, like this labor movement. It's going to cost, you know, the status quo is going to cost management. It's going to cost the wealthy when we actually organize for union rights, when we actually organize for, for, for wages, et cetera. And really that's when I think he becomes a super threat to the state. And, a, and there's a sense that King internationally is forming coalition. Remember, that's what also happens with Malcolm. Malcolm is internationally forming coalitions. And I think, you know, again, more than even the black vote, which we know that's a threat to, you know, white supremacy, but King understood there was a level past the vote that was going to hit them in their their pockets. 
Yes. And I think, you know, to what you said earlier, I think that's why we often see King being frozen in that 1963 yeah. speech, you know, the I Have a Dream yes. um, and being frozen and not even just in that speech, but in, you know, the line about uh, yeah, in that speech. Right. Because the actual speech is like totally radical. Exactly. Like the actual speech, he is going in on the United States government in that speech. He is going in. He is going in on the fraud that is the Constitution. He says, you wrote us a, a bounce check that came back insufficient funds. Mm -hmm. Like he said, pay us what you owe. <laughs> yes. Like, that's what he really stood up there and said, run me my rights that you wrote down in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Yes, yes. But we don't talk about that part of the speech. That no. does not fit no. on a nice little meme or nice little quote. I think about this sometimes. I'm like, imagine if you were shot down tomorrow on your balcony and your legacy was reduced to the nicest thing you ever said about white people. I would be so furious. <laughs> like, I would be so livid. Like, after all I said... Y'all reduced me to the one nice thing I said about white people. <laughs> right. I said so much. <laughs> you know, but that's what we do to King. That's what we do to King. King was, I mean, he really went in, particularly, and this is why I like King's like it's like chef's kiss. He went in on white moderates like nobody's business. Yes. He's like, I'm not even like, I'm not even like really that caught up on like the Klansmen. He's like, I know how they operate. Like they some, you know, they straight shooters. He's like, that, that that's snooze fest to me. He's <laughs> like, what really, what really impedes my movement is white moderates, the people who pretend to be the allies and tell us to go slow. He's mm -hmm. like, you know, what really hurts me is like these alliances that white moderates make with, you know, black leadership and then tell us like you're moving too fast, you want too much. He's, you know, which is which is ironic because the same same thing happened with abolition. There were white people who literally argued that the eradication of slavery would be too much. Mm -hmm. That it should go slow. It should be this gradual phasing out of slavery. Yes. You know, they want, they want, and there were people who argued not to eradicate slavery, but to reform slavery. Yes, reform. Yes. You know, like the <laughs> abolition of slavery is as radical as it gets. They argued to reform it. We could just have a more comfortable slavery. Mm -hmm. That you know, there are white abolitionists who did that. So you know, I, yeah, absolutely, it's like you know, King gets. I mean, he gets. Some people say defamed is like you know, he gets anesthetized, and he gets you know, he gets he gets re redacted from everything that he left us, which were like again, we don't have to make it up. He wrote it down. Everything he left us was like, I am giving you like the blueprint to black power. Mm -hmm. Yes. And he's, yes, the blueprint. He's very specific. He's very mm -hmm. detailed. It's all there, mm -hmm. but we tend to think of him as kind of the, you know, hold hands, like, yeah. race, right, yeah. reconciliation type of model. And that's not yeah. what he's talking about at, at all. At all. And, you know, another thing that I get from, you know, just the 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 activists of that era, like the OGs from that era, because the ones who are still living, you know, they're in like their 80s. You know, we lost C.T. Vivian this year. You know, we lost, uh, you know, we lost uh, John Lewis, of course. We lost um, um, Abernathy. Right. Mm -hmm. Like like but but some of them are still living and talking to them is fascinating because ha hearing their take on the movement now. Mm -hmm. I think it's just like it's gym after gym because they're like, look, you all think that all we did was march. Mm -hmm. He's like, there, there, there's a time to march and there's a time not to march. <laughs> right. right? He's like, there, there are more, there's more to strategy than being in the streets. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is like what Fannie Lou Hamer reminds me of. It's like Fannie Lou Hamer was literally organizing at the Democratic National Convention to the point where LBJ himself was shook. LB, when, when Fannie Lou Hamer's on the floor of the DNC, she's got the, she's got the, the dais set up, the, the mics, are, all the cameras are on her. LBJ is so shook about what this black sharecropping woman is about to say about the state of black civil rights in the South, 
that he literally caused an emergency press conference at the White House to divert all the attention from the DNC. And then he announces what is like the most like, huh? Like he's like, oh, I just wanted to say it's the um, it's the birthday of our secretary of, of transportation and um, he's gonna retire. And people are like, you called us for this? Because he's like terrified of Fannie Lou Hamer calling him out as a hypocrite. And that's how they forced the hand of LBJ. It's like, if you lined up all the presidents, LBJ is probably the one who it's like, okay, you're like the least racist in terms of like actually doing something policy-wise. It's not really like, you're not Hall of Fame, but like you did something, right? But LBJ didn't do something out of the goodness of his heart. King, Hamer, Ella Baker, Stokely, they all forced his hand. They understood the strategy of playing the Democrats at their own game. Because remember, they're fighting in Southern Democrats in the, in the South. So they understand that the Democratic Party is faction, mm -hmm. right? And they understand how to play it. They understand how to play it. And so Fannie is making the Democrats look like fools because she's talking about how Mississippi straight state troopers raped and beat her under their democratic government, right? She's at the DNC saying this and LBJ, who's a Southern Democrat is like, oh, oh, like he's like, he is, he is in panic mode. He is in panic mode to try to like do the, like, look over there while she's speaking. They forced his hand. They forced his hand to sign the Civil Rights Act. Yes, yes. I love thinking about the multi-level strategies that have to take place. Um, we're going to take yes. a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Saida Grundy, an assistant professor of sociology and African-American studies at Boston University. And before the break, we are talking about different strategies that have to be used when we're talking about Black liberation, when we're talking about racial equity, when we're talking about dismantling racism. And I wanted to hear more about your thoughts, thinking about what you said, speaking with elders who are in the civil rights movements as we think about yeah. in 1960s, 1970s, and thinking about the current civil rights movement that we are in now and the variety of strategies at our disposal now in you know, a very different time period. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, one I think is to sort of understand what each generation sort of aim and intention is for. So, you know, the Garveyites, like, which I think is such an understudied moment in like black movements. I mean, the historians were like, we studied all the time, but I swear like the public does not appreciate Garvey at the scale they should. Mm -hmm. Garvey's movement was so effective that there was a time in which even like white immigrants were like, well, black people are going to get their freedom before like the rest of it. Like, it was it was so effective that people actually thought like Jim Crow would topple because mm -hmm. of Garvey's movement. They're like, well, clearly the Negro is more organized than anyone. So like, um, you know, Garvey was talking stuff that was truly radical. He's like, you know, we're going to build all these businesses. I bought ships. We're going to go back to Africa, etc. Um, so that's so and so and then Garvey's movement, of course, immediately bridges to Malcolm's movement because Malcolm's father is a Garveyite. And remember that the nation of Islam is also ideologically congruent with a lot of Garveyism. And so when Malcolm's siblings bring him into the nation, they're like, oh, this wasn't elite for us. Like we were raised in this kind of like cultural ideological movement. So they were already, you know, they were all, all on board for it. So, you know, you have these periods in which like the sort of the game sort of, you know, shifts in terms of like, what is the priority at that moment? So with Garvey in the, you know, early, you know, 20th century, the, the idea is not that you can work with this country. It's that it's like Africa for the Africans, right? It's like, we are going to have to get our empire in the way that the U.S. has its empire, right? In the way that, you know, Europe has, you know, you know, London has its empire. It's like, that's their ideas. The black man will have an empire. And then you have, you know, uh, the civil rights movement, which is like, okay, we're here. We're going to actually have to like do these very instrumental things to stop violence against, you know, we're, we're dying in the South. 
lynching is, you know, when we talk about Ida B. Wells, you know, in that whole generation, lynching is, it's, it's police brutality on steroids. Like, you know, we might have a high profile police murder every few weeks. They were dealing with like a lynching a week, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, they, lynching meant that it was a state of white terrorism in which you just could not breathe as a black person. You could, you could not access anything about life. You know, Ida B. Wells comes to, you know, she flees Memphis for Chicago because her friend in Memphis is lynched for opening up a grocery store that's in direct competition with a white owned grocery store, right? Mm -hmm. And she's the one who proves again empirically, which is why she's all our mother, she proves empirically that like this myth that white people have about black people being rapists and being criminals and being thieves, that's the lie they tell. What's really happening is they're lynching us when we're in direct political and economic competition with them. Yes. The most common time for a lynching was the, was the night before an election, mm -hmm. you know? So like that's, I think, you know, that, that era, when I think of the birth of the NAACP, it's really black women's club movements organizing around lynching. And that really... The Black Women's Club movement is so important in terms of, you know, Black leadership, which then this is actually what I study, Black leadership when it tends to be male dominated and patriarchal, that actually ignores how Black change happens, which Black change really, um, even in the civil rights movements happen. Like the top crust of leadership might be men, mm -hmm. but there's this huge midsection and that midsection is dominated by women and that's where the work gets done. Mm -hmm. So it's like, yes, the men give good sermons and they, you know, might, you know, you know, lead movements. They might be at the front of the march, but it's actually the, the community organizing, which is where it gets done. Yes. The actual voter registrations, the actual, all the, when we see this in Atlanta, we see this everywhere else that is being done by black women. Mm -hmm. And that's what the Black Women's Club movement did. And what I love so much about the Black Women's Club movement is so, at, you know, the passage of the 15th Amendment meant that Black men could vote and Black women couldn't. So you have this like halfway citizenship happen in the race in which it's like Black men are citizens, but Black women aren't. But Black women being, you know, as bad as, as we are, are, like their thing was, okay, you are all not voting for yourselves. You're voting for us. Yes. You all are delegates of the race. So they were so organized politically that black, you know, the, the, the joke of the day was if there's a political convention in town, you better be prepared to do your own laundry and like cook your own food and raise your own kids because all the black women are going to be at the convention. Black women were that political. So mm -hmm. that movement really gives birth to NAACP and what, you know, becomes the civil rights movement, which again is black women doing that work. And, and lynching was, you know, lynching really um, catalyzed them. A. Philip Randolph tries to push FDR to pass an anti-lynching bill, which FDR portrays him and he doesn't do it. Um, but that's like really what got them into like, there's a legislative aim to this. We could actually get a bill passed about lynching. We could make it a federal crime, et cetera. And I think that opens the door to thinking about we could take, we could actually, you know, undo, you know, Jim Crow on a legislative level. And, you know, that's what the NAACP's legislative wing, which, you know, again, Charles Hamilton Houston, they're really masterful at this. With the movement now, I think about it as sort of mirroring the Black Women's Club movement in terms of like, it's, it's a similar effect. It's, it's Black women organizing around a type of violence that might, you know, it, it, the, the figureheads of it might be Black men, mm -hmm. but they see that violence as threatening the Black community writ large, mm -hmm. right? And that's, you know, lynching is the same thing. Lynching attacked men, women, and children, but they saw that violence as like, we can't do Black families under this type of violence. We can't have our businesses, like we can't breathe under this type of violence. And I think that's what, you know, what the movement now does to an extent. I think if the civil rights leaders were looking at it now, I, I definitely think they would say, y'all need to talk about to us about strategy. Mm -hmm. Like Twitter has changed things. Twitter <laughs> has changed things. You know, I was not around in the sixties. So I don't know, you know, if, if it was like, you know, I don't know how the male egos were in the sixties. <laughs> I think that, you know, the idea that you can become really high profile really quickly 
and, and you're really young and you might not understand the power you have yet, I'm all about like, you know, activists, mentoring activists. So mm-hmm. I think that that should be like, we should, we should do some more of that. Like the OGs need to sit down with the young Gs. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Dr. Grundy, I have enjoyed having you here with us this morning. You have downloaded so much information to us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You are welcome. You are welcome. Thank you again to Dr. Saida Grundy for joining us this morning. I just love catching up with her every time we get a chance to talk. I always learn so much. And of course, her energy is so contagious. Uh, For today's positive note, I wanted to leave you with a quote from Dr. Carter G. Woodson. He said, those who have no record of their forebears have of what their forebears have accomplished, lose the inspiration, which comes from the teaching of biography and history. And as Dr. Grundy really shared with us today, this great intellectual history and all of the seeds that bore fruit from Dr. Woodson's work on African-American history, let us be inspired to one, get into our history. And then two, if there is no historical record, we can be the one to begin to create that record, not only for ourselves, but for those who may come after us. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa, and I will see you back here next Saturday morning at 9 a.m.